Greetings and welcome back to the series, Let Us Reason Together, which is an overview of the book of Isaiah. We're looking at many of the main themes contained in the book of Isaiah. We're finding many exciting things, including a couple of verses that are traditional for us to be using in the Christmas season. And so we just happen to be going through our book of Isaiah at the right time to catch these in the Christmas season. So I hope you can... Uh, really get something out of this and really for future Christmases really have something to to hold on to to think about that will take your worship even deeper at this great time of year. I'm going to read a verse for you here and this is a verse that you've no doubt heard before and and you've heard it in the context of Christmas. It's Isaiah 9 6 and here's what it says there. It says uh, you've uh, it says for to us a child is born to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, that is a verse. You've heard that verse applied to Jesus Christ at Christmas time. But the question we need to answer for ourselves, and we should always be asking regarding uh, what we believe and, and what we what our traditions hold to, is why. Why do we use this? How do we know this applies to Jesus Christ? And if this does apply to Jesus Christ, then what more will the passage, the context of this verse, tell us about him? So the series, uh, the uh, sermon today is called The Zeal of the Lord. And yes, indeed, this is a verse appropriate to the Christmas season, but it's also very important in our study of the book of Isaiah. Today's text, we'll be taking a look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, which contain this verse in it, and we'll be able to leverage the context to learn a great deal more about who he is and what he has done. Well, we will answer these questions and more as we take a good look at these verses. So, the first question is, how do we know this is about Jesus Christ. Well, you can see the verse there. It sounds like it's about him. It talks about a child being born, a son being given. And while Jesus was a child that was born to a woman, he indeed was the son of God who was given to us because he was not a, a son of a man in a normal way. And this is an exceptional son that has been given. At Christmas, we think of the birth of Jesus Christ. He was the Son of God. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the one by whom and for whom all things were made. And he took on human flesh, entered into creation itself to accomplish a great deal. Things that are relevant to each and every human being. So we read this verse and we naturally think about him, but there's a much stronger connection here. The whole passage is attested by the New Testament to be about Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at this. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, early in Jesus' ministry, this is right after his baptism and right after the temptation in the wilderness, Matthew accounts this. He says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, that is, by the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, our eyebrows should raise a bit at that, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Well, it's often the case that when an Old Testament text is referenced by the New Testament, it's more than just picking those words in particular, picking that one verse. It's pointing us to it. It's an invitation to go exploring. What does the context of that mean? What else is being said in Isaiah in chapter 9 around this key verse that is uh, referred to here? See, these verses in Matthew refer to the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 9. And if you especially refer to simply the beginning of a passage, then you can be sure that study of that passage will reveal to you more. A good example is this. From the cross, Jesus uh, shouted out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the first words of Psalm 22. Well, Psalm 22 has much more than those words in it. And when you go back and you read Psalm 22, you find literally dozens of things that refer to Jesus and details about his crucifixion, about his resurrection. Very important things are uncovered there, but all Jesus did was point us to the first few phrases. We've got the same thing right here. So we should be very excited about what Matthew has done for us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He has sent us back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1. And the land spoken of here in Matthew and in Isaiah 9 is the region around Galilee where most of Jesus' ministry takes place. This is where Jesus had his greatest amount of time spent ministering to people. This is where he chose his disciples from. This is where he does his greatest teaching and his greatest miracles. They were all done in that area. Now, we think of the great confrontations that he had and the ultimate confrontation his last week in the city of Jerusalem. And those were important, but so was this. This region was particularly important, and we're going to find out today just why. What is it about this place that has him ministering out there in what would be rural irrelevancy of the day? This would be the same as as ministering in the satellite cities outside a great city all the while and only occasionally visiting the great city where the mass of the population was, where the influencers were. Jesus ministered here in Galilee. And it was the first part, as we read Isaiah, the first part of Israel that is attacked by the Assyrians. And the distress there was particularly great, but in all the land there was great distress. And it was coming as described by Isaiah. If we back up to the very last verse of chapter 8 in Isaiah, look what it says here. It says, they will look to the earth, and these are the people of Israel, as Assyria comes and attacks them because their unfaithfulness. It says, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So the connection here to chapter 9 is in this word gloom. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, that is in the time of Isaiah, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
Let's look at the rest of these verses in this uh, passage here to really get a grip on it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, as you've seen, the title of today's sermon is The Zeal of the Lord. And we've just read about this great zeal that accomplishes what God will in his salvation for humanity. Let's pray about this together. Father God, we praise you and we thank you that you have brought us together to look at the scriptures that you have opened up to us so much by your servant Matthew referring us back to these great passages. Lord, we can understand, we can learn, and by the help of your spirit, Lord, we will. So send your spirit upon your people to glorify yourself in their sight. Equip us, Lord, to better share the message that Christmas is. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have some wonderful things, and we want to talk about the context. The context of Isaiah chapter 9 is going to be very important. What has happened in Isaiah up to this point? Well, God was bringing the Assyrian army upon Israel and Judah uh, in wrath. They had been unfaithful, they were breaking the terms of the covenant that they had made with God. And some of those terms included the fact that if they were not obedient to God, if they went after idols, if they disobeyed while they were in the land, he indeed would bring wrath upon them in the form of enemies and other earthly disasters upon them. So God is bringing Assyria in wrath. And let me bring this up on our PowerPoint here so that you can be well-equipped to see these things. He was bringing Assyria in wrath. He was bringing Babylon later in wrath upon Judah. God was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem, and he's already made mention of it at this point in the book of Isaiah. This would be yet future. Isaiah didn't live until the time that the temple was destroyed, but God was already warning them about it. God was taking the nation then into exile, but God was going to be reestablishing Jerusalem, or Zion as it's often called in the book, and it was going to be better than ever, including even the benefit of all other nations. So the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, you know, well, how's he going to do this? You know, what would that time be like? in which he would do such a thing, and who would be the earthly agent of such a wonderful turnaround? God was in the habit of sending earthly agents to accomplish his will. He sent Moses, he sent Joshua, he sent the judges in their time, and when the people requested a king, he gave them a king they asked for. He wasn't particularly good. 
but then he gave them better kings. And this is the way of God. But who would be able to reestablish Zion after all this disaster, after complete exile, to be in, in such a turnaround, a city of righteousness? What would this one be like that would accomplish such a thing? And indeed, um, what is it that he would actually do? And so these are important questions, and these questions are all answered in Isaiah chapter 9. So let's take a look at some of these things. First of all, let's talk about who he is. As you saw in Isaiah 9, 6, these are the words that are used to describe him. Now, it makes a nice pairing to say, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, because there you've got four things, all with an adjective and a noun, make a nice pair of four parallel things. But the problem is in the... Uh, in the Hebrew, wonderful appears to be in a noun form. In other words, it would be saying that he is the wonderful, or he is that which is wonderful. And this word wonderful, unfortunately, we it has lost its impact in our language. In English language, in the modern West, we have a tendency to overuse words. We have a tendency to uh, use them to the point that they lose their meaning. Think about the word awesome. Uh, used to mean something inspiring awe. In other words, it's something that has an impact on your psyche. It causes you to think in a certain way. Uh, it inspires awe, something that would give you pause, something that would cause you to think, something that was unexpected. Well, wonderful is a very similar kind of word. It is something full of wonder. In other words, it is a mystery. We, when we see something that is truly wonderful, we don't quite understand sometimes what we're seeing. We don't quite have words to describe what we are seeing. And so we use a word like wonderful. In other words, I'm kind of wondering what this is all about. So Jesus is called wonderful. And in the Bible, this word is used to mean marvelous, which is very similar. It would be something that caused someone to marvel at something. Uh, it would be something that would be extraordinary, hard to understand, even supernatural. So when he is called wonderful, we want all those things in view. Now, wonderful could be an adjective describing the type of counselor he is. When we see the word counselor here, we're talking about an advisor, a lawyer, a consultant. This would be someone who is very wise to be able to rule. This is his qualification for ruling, that he is this wonderful counselor. Also needed for ruling is all the wisdom in the world cannot rule people without might or power. And this is mighty God. And this is the might beyond the wisdom right here. As we look at this one that's born in a manger, that we often see at Christmas time, that he is literally placed into an animal food trough, we have to see these this list of descriptors here and understand among them is mighty God. This means he has the power, not just the wisdom, in order to rule. He doesn't just know what to do. He has the power and the authority to do it. And Jesus, as we know, was divine, very clearly ruling upon the earth, and yet divine. And here it is in Isaiah, some 700 years before Christ came, an unmistakable description of him that is stating very plainly that he is the mighty God. 
Now, there are many cults and, and many false religions this day that will deny that Jesus was truly divine. They'll say, oh, he was a remarkable man, or he was filled with the Spirit, but he was just a man. Well, they have to wrestle with this verse, because this verse is plainly attributing to him divinity. And look what else it says about him, things that can only be of those who are divine. How about everlasting father? Father would speak of his relationship to his people, a relationship unlike relationships with most earthly rulers, because this is a relationship that is personal. This is a relationship that is full of care. His people aren't taxpayers to be manipulated. They aren't mere subjects to be ruled over or peasants to be controlled. They are family. They are children to be treated with all the privileges of princes and princesses, even to the point of inheriting the kingdom. Yes, that's what the Bible says about the people of God. And that he is an everlasting father means that his rule will have no end. There's no chance that the next king is going to be bad because he is the final king and he is the eternal one, the forever father king. And he's also the Prince of Peace. This is Shalom. This is peace of all kinds. It is personal well-being and harmony. It is peace with God. It is the idea of wholeness and soundness, completeness. In other words, he will have a kingdom full of subjects that are completed, that are whole, that are sound. And he is the one who can deliver this, because he is all of these things. So that's a little bit of a description of who he is when we look into the book of Isaiah here. But now, let's take a look at what it is that he does. And this gets very fascinating. If we look to the scriptures here, I want to go back to those for just a moment, and look at verse 1. In verse 1 here, this place of Zebulun and Naphtali, this is the region that was greatly humbled. Yes, they were full of wickedness. This was part of the northern kingdom, and they had nothing but wicked kings. And there was all kinds of idolatry and false worship and just wickedness going on in the land of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he humbled them by destroying them with the Assyrians in the times of Isaiah. But... Now look what he does. He exalts them to give them the privilege of Jesus walking among them. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And this is what he does. He exalts the humble. He also prospers the nation. When we think about this in verse 3 here, take a look at what it says in verse 3. Uh, as we see, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Okay, He has multiplied the nation. When Jesus came, uh, that ministry that started in Galilee, those disciples that he chose from Galilee, that ministry began to take the world by storm. Once Jesus had risen and had appeared again to the disciples and then ascended into heaven, the early church began and took this gospel to all nations to the point where the number of believers that have lived and died in the last couple thousand years has far surpassed the population of the nation Israel. He indeed has, indeed has multiplied the nation. He prospers 
the nation in that way. He also is going to judge oppressors. And that's a very important theme in the book of Isaiah is the idea of social justice. And when I talk about social justice, I'm talking about it biblically. I'm talking about God bringing justice, God holding people accountable to love their neighbors as themselves, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But look what he says here in verse 4. The yoke of, of his burden and the staff for his shoulders, Galilee, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That refers back to a, a battle that was done on behalf of the Israelites way back there in the, the Pentateuch, back there with, with Moses and fellas. And this was re referenced then, taking us all the way back to the Exodus. I'm going to be with them, and I am going to do for them what I did with those people I brought out of Egypt. I am going to break the rod of their oppressor. I'm going to let Assyria have it. And he did. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God is judging these things. He's not letting bad things happen. He's accounting all of these things and everyone will have to pay for the things that they have done. He judges oppressors. He doesn't let people get away with it. He establishes a just and eternal rule upon the earth according to verse 7 here. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. We're going to study those two words justice and righteousness in another entire sermon because it is, it is one of the major themes of the book of Isaiah. The idea that you are judging, you are ruling with justice and righteousness, and this is something that is going to be done from the throne of David. See, he's keeping his promises to, to do this in, in, from the throne of David, his promise to Israel, his promises to Abraham, all the way back to his promise in the garden to crush the head of the serpent. God is keeping his promises. And this is incredibly important for us to understand. He establishes a just and, and uh, eternal rule upon the earth. The question is, how does he do it? Well, what we have at the end of this verse 7 here, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is how he does it. This is a passionate commitment. The word zeal is so important to understand here because zeal is not irrational. Zeal is not simply emotional. Zeal is that motivation, that determination that comes from commitment. A determination that comes from the fulfillment of a commitment. And this is what he does. He plans the future around this. How do we know that he's going to be ac accomplishing all that he wants to upon the earth? Because to this point, he has a perfect record. Jesus was born exactly when and where he said it would happen. Jesus was born in the manner that in which it happened. And Jesus was obedient in everything that he did. Everything the Father wanted him to do, he accomplished, including 
offering himself upon the cross. This is the zeal of the Lord. This is what it looks like. This is the one who plans the future, who shatters the enemies, who keeps all of his promises. And this is all the work of God. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. And it says the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of armies. Well, what kind of armies is he Lord of? Well, we get a glimpse of them a few times in the Bible. They're heavenly armies. And mankind, the entirety of mankind is not a match for them. He has all this power and authority, and he is absolutely going to win. He's going to accomplish it, and we do have the end of the story already published in the book of Revelation. He does it. Sorry if that's a spoiler for you, but he does it successfully. He keeps all of his promises. Well, these are great and lofty and wonderful things, but the question has to come to us, as it should with every scripture we study does this mean to us? What does this really have to say to us today? Because we got problems and these are high and lofty ideas and we're talking about eternity. That could be a long way off. We're talking about things in the past. That's a long way in the past. We're talking about a different culture. What does this all mean to me? Well, first of all, it means this, that God has secured a salvation that each and every one of us may enter into by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Remember the New Testament connection that we started with, that Matthew pointed us back to this, and then he says, it is essentially saying, this is about Jesus. He's the one who's going to accomplish this ushering in of a new kingdom of justice and righteousness. And those who repent, those who humble themselves, who bow the knee before him, are those who will be a part of it. Look what he says, even in chapter 1 of the, the great book of Isaiah. It says this in chapter 27. Zion, that is Jerusalem, or the people of God. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. That's the way he rules. Justice and righteousness. Now, how can a sinner be forgiven? The sin that they committed has to be paid for. You, you will be an unjust God if you just simply just wave it away and just say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you didn't mean to do that. Let's just forget about it. Let's just brush it aside. If an earthly judge let a murderer walk away just because he felt like they were sorry for it, then we would be incensed. We would be angry because that would be a great injustice. And the same is true of the author of the universe as well. If he were to simply just brush it away, that would be one thing. But he doesn't. The sin was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So justice was done. Now what about righteousness? Well, the righteousness of God is this, that Jesus did absolutely everything the Father ever sent him to do. Jesus even, in fact, once said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And then he boldly prayed to the Father near the end of his ministry, the night that he was taken, and he said, I have glorified you on earth, accomplishing that which you sent me to do. He was confident that he had done it all, and he did, even to the point of the cross. And so that perfect righteousness then, because no one can be before the God without before God without perfect righteousness, that perfect righteousness is granted to those 
who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only does he take their sin, he gives them his righteousness. Do you understand this? At Christmas time, we give gifts and we give gifts because Jesus was the ultimate gift that was given. But do you realize the exchange that takes place? That a believer in Jesus Christ hands over his sin? I mean, can you imagine unwrapping that? Think of all the seedy and awful things you've done. And I'm not talking about just things you've physically done, but the thoughts and intentions of your own heart. That if someone could open a box and see those things, that would be highly inappropriate for any gift exchange, even those silly white elephant things we do sometimes. But we hand over our sins and he hands us his righteousness. He credits to our account all the good things that he ever did. So we can stand before the Father in confidence, knowing that we stand there not of our own power, not even of our own will, but of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our sins having been paid for by the grace of God. So I hope that's a major thing and a major reason for us to look at this, that God himself that it is the zeal of the Lord that accomplishes this. He secured salvation for those who enter in through repentance and faith in Christ. Another good thing this means to us is this, that God is fulfilling all of his promises. He's not going to miss a single one. He's hitting them all in his perfect order, in his perfect time. So all those ones that are still out there, those promises like he's gone to prepare a place for us and he will bring us to be with him and we will be with him forever and he will not leave us or forsake us and he will give us the things that we need to accomplish his mission upon the earth. All those promises that Jesus ever made to his disciples and all those ones reiterated and, and revealed by the apostles and the prophets, he's fulfilling them all. And so he indeed is a good God who's fulfilling all his promises. And then finally, for those of us who we feel secure that we've believed in Jesus Christ, we understand these things, do you realize that what he has done in referring back to Isaiah here and giving us these prophecies, he's given us a very simple and powerful message for the Christmas season. And it's as simple as asking anyone a question because the, the mere having a Christmas season opens us up for that opportunity. You find someone that has Christmas decorations or someone wishes you a Merry Christmas or someone invites you over to their house for a meal and you can ask the simple questions. Do you know why we give gifts at Christmas? And you can tell them about the gift of Jesus Christ and what it means to mankind. Do you know why we have feasts? Well, because there were many feasts and gatherings prescribed by God in the law and these are things that are worthy of celebration. This is what we do. And we're all looking forward to a great feast in which Jesus is going to serve us. Well, why do we then have family get-togethers and stuff at this time? To celebrate, to worship. Why do we go to church at Christmas? Well, to give thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ. This makes it easy for us to share the truth of Christmas with all those around us. See, at Christmas, Jesus Christ brings what it is that every human being craves. We crave celebration. We crave peace. We crave fellowship. We crave the grace of God to forgive us our sins. We, we crave to be rid of sin. And this is what he offers. His first coming, 
all the foundational work was finished. For all who will believe to enter in to the kingdom of God, that eternal kingdom that is beginning now, but will be manifest completely at his second coming. And does your Christmas celebration include those ideas? Because after all, this is what we all know deep inside that we desperately need. He brings everything we need and everything we want. Now, he is bringing this great rule of justice and righteousness upon the earth. But the difficulty for many of us is that that rule must include us. And yet we're holding on to sins. We're holding on to our independence. We're clutching at our own perceived sovereignty, unwilling to hand over our lives to him who rules. Well, I assure you, your life will be handed over to Jesus Christ eventually. See, the Bible says this. It says, Before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this verse that I refer to from the book of Philippians is not just referring to believers. It says all those on the earth, all those in heaven, all those even under the earth, referring to all the living and the dead of all the ages, every single human being will bow the knee to him. And then they'll be split into two groups. Those who will spend eternity with him on a new heaven and new earth, and those who will spend an eternity suffering and paying the price for their own sins in a place called the lake of fire. Now the difference between the two is whether in this time they've bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. He is the one that has the power, that he has the will, that he has the zeal to accomplish all these things. This Jesus Christ who walked on water who healed, who raised the dead, who laid down his own life for the payment of our sins and took it up again, has both the power and the will to change the hearts of men, to change us from the inside out. So we need not be concerned or worried about, oh, I've got these things that I'm hanging on to and and gee, I just don't think I can give it up. I don't think I can get over it. I don't think I can be forgiven. He has the power and the will to forgive you in justice, and in righteousness. And it's the only entry into the kingdom of God is to acknowledge that we are part of the problem that he came to solve. And it's no more work than receiving a gift and opening it. We can take no credit for it. It is completely an act of grace. But even this grace has an appropriate response to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of sins. For we cannot truly repent if we do not truly believe that to us a child is born, a son is given. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you today for this great message that to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Let us never forget that like us he was a child born into this world, but that he was your son and therefore was a gift, a gift of great love, a gift of great sacrifice. 
So, Lord, as we look at all his attributes and all the work that he has come to accomplish and all these things, Lord, we're filled with wonder and, and our minds are not able to grasp. But, Lord, I pray that you give each and every one of us who review this scripture today a little more than we came with. Give us a little more understanding. Elevate our hearts just a little higher that we may indeed be encouraged, that we may indeed celebrate, that we may indeed see your goodness in all that you've done. We thank you and praise you for your goodness in these scriptures, for your goodness at all times, fulfilling all promises whatsoever you've made. We trust you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that this has been some benefit to you, and I encourage you, to contact us. Contact us with your questions or your comments or your help. You're just reaching out or you, you have a prayer request or something. Let us know about it. You can contact us at whitesrun.org. That's our website. You can learn more about us, find more sermon content there, and you can find notes to go along with the sermon there as well. You can also contact us by email at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And that is probably the best way to contact us. That will actually be read by a human being, and you will receive a prompt response. Well, we thank you and bless you for listening.